Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God, profitable for us. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your most holy word. We pray that you might bless us in the consideration of it now, in the reading and hearing of it, in the preaching and hearing of it, that we might grow in grace and knowledge, that we may seek first your kingdom and righteousness, that we may rightly divide the word of truth and live according to its precepts. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We continue in our consideration of God's covenants. This is the third part. We looked at the covenant idea, the diatheke in Greek in the New Testament in our first study. Then we looked at Genesis chapter 15 last week, God's inheritance to Abram, a free gift without deeds on his part. God made such a testament with him, not a mutual covenant, a binding of various parties by their word, but God alone giving his word. God put Abram to sleep. God swore all by himself, both without Abram and also swearing by himself as the appeal to himself. God promised unilateral benefits. God dealt with Abram then in the way of a testament, not of a covenant. We saw this as a rebuke to covenant theology, who say, berith, the Old Testament term, always means a proper covenant. That is not so, not in Abram's case in the least. Now let's open to Exodus chapter 6 concerning God's covenant or his testament. Page 65 of your pew Bibles, Exodus chapter 6, we'll read verses 1 through 5. The Lord uses this same term, berith, in this context. Verse 1. Then the Lord said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, by the name of God Almighty. But by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. And I have also established my covenant with them, to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. I, and I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Here, notice a few things. God starts this conversation with Moses with the words, the Lord said to Moses, and then he identifies himself. He said, I am the Lord. 
I am the Almighty. I am the eternal God. Verse 2. Then verse 3, notice he connects what he's doing with Moses with what he did with Abraham. I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob. You remember the idea of a testament has heirs, it has goods, and it will have some succession of heirs. Here's what we see. Abraham is the father. Isaac is his son. Jacob is his grandson. They are heirs together of the same promise. God's reminding Moses that this is God's purpose. He called by himself Abraham. He gave him the promise. Then he gave him Isaac as part of his inheritance, also to be his heir. And then he appointed Jacob as the heir of the promise to Isaac. He revealed himself by the name of God Almighty, verse 3 tells us, having all power, all sufficiency, all ability to accomplish what I have promised. That's the point of the name God Almighty. It doesn't mean that you can go to Washington, D.C. and say, free at last, free at last. No, it means that God will fulfill his promise. God Almighty will do exactly what he has said. Deo omnipotente, Jerome translates this, the omnipotent God. We read this in Revelation. God Almighty judges his adversaries like that charlatan who went to Washington, D.C. I was just talking about. God judges the wicked. But notice here, this Almighty God called himself Jehovah when he revealed himself to Moses and he's the same God who established his covenant with them. Verse 4 tells us, here is God's berith. I made it to arise. I set it upright. I established it, he said. Not you, not Abraham, not Isaac, not Jacob. I did this, God says, with them for their benefit, for their good. I made them my heirs. What was God's purpose in establishing this berith? To give them the land. Those words, to give, express a purpose. It's a purpose clause. Why did you establish this covenant, God, this berith? So that I might pass on an inheritance. I might give them something. In this case, the free gift on God's part, that which was put into the inheritance were these goods, the land of Canaan. That's God's purpose for making his berith, is in order to pass on the goods to the successors of heirs, of which Moses and the people of Israel are descendants. They are the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And notice verse 5. And I also heard, I have heard the groaning of the children of Israel. Now we read that phrase, children of Israel, and we might lightly pass that over, but that is extremely important. What does it have to do with what he's saying? Well, I established my berith with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with the purpose that I would give them the land, and who are they? Their children, the heirs, the descendants. My berith 
passes on from generation to generation. God says, you are the heirs of Israel, and therefore you inherit what I put in testament for him. I have remembered my covenant. You are a privileged people, he's saying. I recall that arrangement that I made while Abraham sat upon the ground in a horror of darkness and I passed through as that torch that burned. I'm the one who did it. I made that with Abram and then later gave him the covenant of circumcision and later made promise after promise to him, to Isaac, to Jacob. I'm the God that did that. And I'm remembering that arrangement I made. Now some are so impious that they would say that when God made a covenant with Moses, he forgot the covenant with Abraham. They say this, the Abrahamic covenant is a promise-based covenant, and the Mosaic covenant is a law-based covenant. Do you see God say that when he comes to deliver them out of Egypt and to give them the law? No, you don't. Just the opposite. I'm coming to deliver you and to give you the land that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm remembering my covenant, calling it to mind. In other words, taking action upon that arrangement that I made. The whole exodus, all the way till the settlement under Joshua, is one massive fulfillment of God's promise. In stages, yes. With people who didn't believe? Yes. But all this is with Moses is a codicil to God's original last will and testament with Abraham. It's just another step in adding to the inheritance of his people. The exodus by Moses is built upon God's sheer grace. He is God Almighty. He has all power. He made a covenant. He keeps the covenant. You don't do anything. He does it all. That's what he's saying. I'm the one who made it. I'm the one who keeps it. I'm the one who remembers it. All of grace I have sworn I will keep. Our confession of faith, chapter 7, paragraph 5, says that this covenant, this covenant of God's grace, his testament, was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances. Notice, our confession of faith says that the Mosaic economy is an administration of the covenant of grace. The Testament described in paragraph 4 of our confession, this covenant, that's what they're talking about. Those who say that the Mosaic dispensation is in some sense a covenant of works, as men at Westminster Seminary in California say, are wrong. It is not. It is not an administration of the covenant of works. It is God remembering his covenant of grace that he made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, heirs together of the same promise God's remembering, not forgetting that. Oh, let's forget about that promise covenant, let's do a new thing and call it a kind of covenant of works. No. It's either all works or it's all grace. You can't mix the two. There's no, in some sense, a covenant of works. It does not work, pun intended. 
God, in his gospel testament to Abraham, promised what he is fulfilling in the days of Moses. God swore an oath. God fulfills the oath. God appointed heirs. God passes on the goods to their successors, the children of Israel. God adopted Israel as his son, and he said, your children are now mine. My children, not yours anymore. Let us then, as Gentiles, grasp the depth of what it means to be grafted in to Israel. What does that mean? Well, it means I've been adopted. And all those privileges that God once said are just for them, he said those privileges are yours. You have been engrafted into God's olive tree, the root and the fatness, Israel itself. We are the Israel of God. Gentiles must grasp this. If we have faith in Abraham's God, if we have faith in Abraham's seed, we have the promises of Abraham. We are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. We've been brought nigh, Ephesians 2 tells us, by the blood of Christ to the commonwealth of Israel, to the covenants of promise, of which we were once afar off and strangers. We are the redeemed of the Lord. So let us live, so let us praise, so let us rejoice. God has made us his heirs. Now, let's turn over to Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, page 204 of your pew Bibles. We'll start our reading at verse 10, and we'll read through verse 13. Deuteronomy 4, verse 10. Especially the day that thou stoodest before the Lord thy God in Horeb. When the Lord said unto me, Gather me the people together, and I will make them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they li shall live upon the earth, and that they may teach their children. And ye came near and stood under the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire unto the midst of heaven, with darkness, clouds, and thick darkness. And the Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude, only you heard a voice. And he declared unto you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, even ten commandments. And he wrote them upon two tables of stone. Here notice, He's describing for them what we call Mount Sinai, the giving of the law. Horeb is another name for Sinai. God wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger on two tables of stone. That's what he's talking about. Half of the commandments were on the first table, and the other half, you might say, were on the second table. First table of the law, second table of the law. He wrote all Ten Commandments on two tables not all on one, and a second copy of all ten on the other. That is incorrect. He wrote them on the two tables, one with our duty to God, one with our duty to our neighbor. And the purpose for which God did this publication 
was so that they might learn to fear him, verse 10 tells us. The publication of God's word and law is to lead to the fear of God. And he says, that fear should be all the time, all your days, and everywhere you go. Because he uses a word here that doesn't mean the land where you're going to inherit. It means this globe that we live upon, the whole earth. Wherever you go, at all times, my purpose is that you learn to fear me. Furthermore, that you take what I've taught you and do what with it? Pass it on to whom? The heirs. The next generation, those who will inherit together with you, pass on my law, my word to your children. Teach it to them. Instruct them in it. They must also be heirs, not merely of the promise, but also of the precept. Verse 12. When God spoke to them on Mount Sinai, they heard the voice of the words. Now, this is a very interesting word. The name Deborah is the same root word as the word word or words. And it means a bee. If you've ever watched bees, they go in a straight line. And from that, they derive the notion of rationality or plan. They go from here, they go up, they go over, they come back, they go here, they do this, they do that. Everything is purposed, everything is planned, everything is seemingly geometric and rational that they do. So the word word means to express a rational thought. You heard the voice of God's rational expression. It sounded upon your ears. And through your ears, where did it go? Into your mind. But what did you not have? Similitudes, likenesses, images. All you heard was words. No images were present. And by the way, God never abolished this because Jesus came in the flesh. This is still the truth. Paul talks about it in Romans 1. If you take an image or a likeness of the invisible God, you are inverting the order of creation and you'll be judged with sodomy and lesbianism. It's unnatural. It's against the course of nature. You saw no similitude, no likeness. You didn't see a little fish god. You didn't see Dagon. He wasn't there. Baal wasn't there. Ashtaroth wasn't there. Your Cheon and your little star of Tamaz, that wasn't there. None of your garbage and your trash. No Virgin Mary, no pictures of Jesus, no icons, nothing. No, no visible representation. What did you have? Words. You heard them. That's what he's saying. You saw no similitude. And God published, he declared, he openly and conspicuously showed his berith. Not a separate berith from what he made with Abraham. No, this is his. The whole thing is his. He makes the laws. He makes the promises. He gives the precepts. He gives the commandments, he gives the statutes, he gives the judgments, he gives the inheritance, he appoints the heirs, and he tells you, your job is to take the inheritance I've given to you and pass it on to the next generation. He declared unto you his covenant, his berith. The same thing in Exodus 6 that he brought to his mind when he brought them out of Egypt, this is the same thing which he commanded you to perform. Now here, notice, 
Are there mutual duties in God's testament? Yes, obviously so. God gives a strict command, a charge, in order that you would actually do what the law says. That's his covenant. His berith has statutes, judgments, and laws, not just to inform your mind, to inform your hands, your feet, your body, your eyes, your ears, your mouth, your nose. God informs your whole man that you might perform his commandments, even ten commandments, he says. Those written on tables of stone by the finger of God. Please open to Exodus 34 for a little more about these ten commandments. Page 101 of your pew Bibles. Exodus 34, we'll read a selection of verses here. Starting at verse 10. And he said, Behold, I make a covenant before all thy people, I will do marvels, such as have not been done in the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among which thou art shall see the work of the Lord, for it is a terrible thing that I will do with thee. Observe thou that which I command thee this day. Behold, I drive out before thee the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Now, let me just note here. When Joshua goes into the land, he's going to use testament, 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 inheritance, heirs. And he uses a word that's usually translated possess. You'll possess this land. It means two things. To kick someone out and to receive an inheritance. You see how that word fits exactly what he's saying? I'm making my bereath, I'm making you my heirs, I'm giving you these goods. I must dispossess these people so that you may inherit their land. You see that? This is God's bereath. Dispossession and inheritance. Kick them out, put you in. I will drive them out. I make this promise. But notice, observe thou that which I command thee this day. Do you see? God doesn't divorce these things. Well, you've got the promise and what I'll do for you. And then here's your side over there. Let's not worry about that. No, he brings them together. I make a promise of gospel and grace and you have duties to perform. And those are not against each other. In fact, they go together in the gospel. Now look at verse 18. The feast of unleavened bread shalt thou keep. Seven days... Thou shalt eat unleavened bread. Now, what did this remind them of? Do you remember? You were bond slaves. I got you out of there so quick, you couldn't let the leaven rise. No leaven in all your houses. Unleavened bread. Get up. Let's go. Put the, what? The blood on your doorpost of the Lamb of God, or I will kill your firstborn, but I will redeem you if you believe in my promise, and I will take you out of this land and give you your inheritance. The feast of unleavened bread shalt thou keep seven days. Then notice, all that openeth the matrix is mine, verse 19. And every firstling, why is every firstling his? Well, it's back to the Passover, isn't it? I took a lamb instead of your firstborn. The lamb of God will die, and his sprinkled blood will mean that your son doesn't have to die. 
And then I'll redeem you and bring you up out of bondage, out of that iron furnace of Egypt that I said to Abraham exactly I would do when he was lying on his back in a horror of darkness in my testament with him. The firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb, and if thou redeem him not, then thou shalt break his neck. All the firstborn of thy sons thou shalt redeem. Why? Because they're God's. They belong to him. He said so. At the Exodus, they're mine. I will take Levi in your stead to be your priest who makes atonement for you and to exactly represent the number of your boys, your firstborn. But you'd better redeem them. You'd better bring them out because that represents what I did in redeeming you. Thou shalt observe the Feast of Weeks. I gave you the land. I gave you the produce. Bring in the harvest. Thrice in the year, verse 23, all your male, all your men children shall appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before thee and enlarge thy borders. Do you remember when the promise was given to Jacob? Look now to the east, Jacob, when he was at Bethel, when he's going off to Laban. Look to the west, look to the north, look to the south. Your borders, what? I will expand your borders. Your inheritance will get larger and larger and larger. I will do this, God says. And when you go up to appear before me three times in the year, I will take care of your women and children. That's what he's saying. Your flocks, your herds, your women, your children. I will look after them. I will enlarge your borders. He talks about the offerings of blood in verse 25. Thou shalt not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven. It must be a pure and unleavened offering. It must be a pure animal. It must be without blemish. Why? Because I made a promise that the lamb will come and that he'll cleanse you from all your sins. Now notice verse 27. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write thou these words, for after the tenor of these words... I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. What words? Words of grace? Yes. Words of law? Yes. Words of promise? Yes. Words of precepts? Yes. All of the above. Verse 28. And he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water, and he wrote upon the tables the words of the berith. The Ten Commandments. So then, I note this doctrine. God's testament of grace, his covenant of grace, it includes both promissory and mandatory parts. Now, promissory means it relates to making a promise. Mandatory means it relates to giving you laws and commands. God's testament includes both a promissory part, I will do this, God says, and a mandatory part, thou shalt do this, or thou shalt not do this. Promises and precepts, gospel and law, doctrines and duties, faith and observance. What does our third question of our shorter catechism ask? What do the scriptures principally teach? Well, what do they teach? What man is to believe concerning God and what else? That it? 
The duty that God requires of man. Law and gospel. Grace and works. Your faith and your repentance. Promises, precepts, gospel and law. The Ten Commandments are called the words of the covenant. God wrote them. He's the initiatory part. He wrote them with his own finger. And then what does he do? These statutes are your inheritance. Take them and teach them to the next generation of heirs. Pass on my legacy to you. Do you know what was in the ark? <laughs> the Ten Commandments. The ark of what? The ark of his testament. The ark of his promise where the gospel was signified by the mercy seat and the worship of angels toward God, enthroned as their king and redeemer, and inside is what? His law, his pot of manna, his miraculous provision of bread from heaven, the rod of his strength, of his priesthood, of Aaron, the divine right of church government, and the dominion of Christ shadowed forth. Yes, Promises and precepts are entailed in God's holy law. God has a testament and it has covenantal features. Are there mutual duties we owe to God? Yes, that's a covenantal feature. Is it fundamentally a covenant? No, it's not. Fundamentally, it's all God's doing. It's all his writing with fingers, with blood, with his inspiration of his spirit. God requires faith. God requires that we obey. But who is it that gives us that gracious gift by which we believe? Who is it that writes the law upon the heart so that we can actually obey? Who does that? The testator, God, unilaterally, without us helping. Let me read an extensive quotation. I normally would not, but this is golden. Anthony Burgess, a Westminster divine in his book on the vindication of the law and covenant says this, let the use of this doctrine be to direct Christians in their practical improvement of law and gospel without hindering each other. Now this is what normally happens. Let's just talk about the law. Well, where's the gospel go? Gets hindered, gets sidelined. Let's just talk about the gospel. What happens to the law? Gets hindered gets sidelined. He's saying we Christians practically must improve our faith, use this doctrine of law and gospel not to hinder the other, but to have them together. He goes on. There are many things in Christianity that people, the people of God make to oppose one another. When yet they would promote each other if wisely ordered. Okay, so we Christians can tend to make things be enemies when if we use some wisdom, he says, they could promote one another. These two things that we think are adverse to each other or opposites, God intends for them to promote each other. Thus, he goes on, thus they make their joy and trembling, their faith and repentance, their zeal and prudence, the law and gospel to thwart one another. Well, you can't rejoice because then you won't be somber. And you can't be somber or you won't rejoice. 
Well, if you focus on repentance and what you need to do right, how will you believe in Jesus? And if you believe in Jesus, how can you even think about your works and obeying God in new obedience and repentance? You see, this is where a lot of heresies come in. They push things out that God says go together. Rejoice with trembling. Remember that from Psalm 2? Faith and repentance. Zeal for God, boiling up in spirit, but prudence of the mind by which you rule your actions. They're not adversarial. They're to go together. He says the following then, continuing on this. The law for a goad. The gospel for a cordial. You know what a goad is? Push your animal along, poke them along. That's the goad. That's the law. When your spirit is flagging, what do you need? A drink. I need a drink. I need to be refreshed. A cordial. Give me something sweet to lift my spirits. That's the gospel. From the one, be instructed. From the other, be supported. You see how these work together? The law, the law and the gospel in God's testament? Be instructed by God's law. In fact, that's what the word Torah means. It's a light of knowledge and instruction. The word law normally translated. From the other be supported, be lifted up by the power of God. The law commands, the gospel enables. You need them both. You need the command and you need the ability. When your heart is careless and dull, run to the law to be excited. Careless, dull, uh, I don't want to obey. God demands it. The law says so. You must do his will. So it rouses you from that careless and dull estate. The law threatens judgment against the wicked, against those who do evil. Don't be wicked. Don't do evil, the law says. Rouses our dullness. Run there to be excited. When your soul is dejected and fearful, throw yourselves into the arms of the gospel, the promise the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. Throw yourself into the arms of Christ, he says. The law has a loveliness in it as well as the gospel. The one is a pure character and image of the holiness of God. The other is of the mercy and goodness of God. So that the consideration of either may wonderfully inflame your affections and raise them up. That's God's intention. He gives the two as companions in his covenant, in his testament, in his berith, in his diatheke. There is law and gospel, promise and precept, and the two are not adversarial to one another. They comply sweetly, as our confession says. And thus far, the exposition of God's word from the book of Romans, from Exodus and Deuteronomy.